Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Bio340 pre- and postnatal genetic screening podcast. My name is Carl Steele. I am currently a hospital corpsman in the United States Navy working in an internal medicine clinic. Over the past month, I've had the honor and privilege to work with this outstanding team of researchers as we investigated several different aspects of pre- and postnatal genetic screening. Personally, I chose to examine the quality assurance methods used to monitor these types of genetic screening. For the rest of this episode, I would like to get things started off with some quick introductions to the rest of the team, and after that, we will be taking turns discussing our own specific research. So without further ado, let's kick things off by introducing everyone to the team. So my name is Georgina Scray. I'm a biological science major at ASU, currently working as a certified pharmacy technician, and I did my research on the different types of genetic testing. My name is Kendra. I am a biological science major at ASU, and uh, the subject I'm covering is moral and ethical implications of prenatal genetic testing. This is something I found incredibly fascinating because I have two children of my own, and although I didn't have any of these tests done, I think that they could have both really good and really bad influences in people's pregnancies. My name is Mazzy. I'm a senior at Arizona State University studying sustainability with an emphasis on ecology and water management. Alongside this, I'm a sample coordinator in an environmental quality lab. The topic I'll be addressing is socioeconomic disparities involved with genetic testing. Now that we have our introductions out of the way, Georgina, would you be kind enough to start us off with the different types of genetic testing that are available? Um, Genetic testing can be used during pregnancy to determine the likelihood as well as diagnose a baby for genetic disorders as early as 10 weeks. There are two major types of testing. There is a prenatal genetic screening, which is mainly non-invasive, Um, but it can't make definitive diagnosis. However, it can tell you the likelihood for a baby developing a genetic disorder. It is able to screen for Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome, and neural tube defects, which are defects of the brain and spine. It can also be obtained through blood tests and specific ultrasounds. There is also the prenatal diagnostic test, which is more invasive, usually used for higher risk circumstances. It's used to determine if the baby has a health or genetic disorder. It's obtained through chorionic villus sampling, which consists of taking a sample of placental tissue, or it can be obtained from amniotic fluid, providing more definitive answers for parents. There are many prenatal genetic screening methods, some including carrier screening, which determines if a person is a carrier of a certain gene and can be obtained by a blood sample or tissue sample from swabbing the inside of the cheek. There's also a cell-free fetal DNA testing, which basically checks the mother's blood for the baby's DNA, in which the DNA is examined for certain gene conditions, such as Down syndrome. Um, So there are many tests available in the first and second trimesters to be able to provide information about a baby's genetic health. It all depends on what the doctor and parents feel most comfortable finding out about their baby. Thanks for that, Georgina. I guess it's back over to me. 
When first beginning my research, I quickly realized that one of the biggest issues that exists with pre- and postnatal genetic screening is regulation and quality assurance. Since the accuracy of these types of testing must be closely monitored to prevent as many false positive and false negative results as possible, it becomes imperative to establish controls and standards that can serve as baseline measurements. But who exactly determines these standards? Further exploration into existing programs led me to one leading institution that started nearly 40 years ago, which has since emerged as the Newborn Screening Quality Assurance Program, established by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. As of 2019, 85 countries participate in the NSQAP, as reported in their 2019 annual summary report. This, combined with the fact that 98% of all U.S. newborns have dry blood spots collected after birth, can raise further questions about the methodology behind testing, as well as the collection storage of the data regarding the screening results for these infants. Even the NSQAP isn't above accreditation and supervision from other organizations, however. This multi-tiered and multi-institutional approach by various other departments, including the International Organization for Standardization and American Association for Laboratory Accreditation, helps build the trust and confidence needed to assure that no one organization eludes inquiry. The CDC establishes cutoff values using the mean of all domestic laboratory cutoff values. So if a particular analytical result does not have one from its default laboratory, it defaults to the NSQAP assigned value, basically giving a standard for all domestic labs. These cutoff values are important because they determine if a lab's false positive and false negative results fall into the expected deviation from the norm. Since these proficiency tests are performed three times per year, this allows any lab that falls outside of the normal deviation to investigate possible sources of error and then resubmit their results. Personally, I really like the idea and the peace of mind that a program like this provides. It creates a system that keeps individual screening laboratories in check and makes sure that the testing is done in an accurate and precise manner. However, it does raise a great deal of ethical and moral questions, but I'll let Kendra and Massey explain those. So the moral and ethical implications of testing are definitely something that is a hot topic right now. Um, as technology has advanced, uh, extended panels have become available so people can see a lot more than what was it was originally designed for, such as Down syndrome. Uh, with that, unfortunately, the um, updated genetic counseling has not necessarily come with it. So there is a big difference between getting tested and the appropriate genetic counseling for something like preparing for a life with a child for Down syndrome or deciding whether or not to terminate a pregnancy because of something like that, that's life altering versus what do you do when you find out it's not the sex of the baby that you wanted or, you know, your kid has a propensity for allergies. So uh, I think there's just a lot of ethical issues on whether or not this could be a technology that is taken too far and how far is too far. And we definitely need to figure out what kind of things need to be taken care of on the clinical side in order to make sure the technology is used appropriately. 
Thanks for touching on those moral and ethical dilemmas there, Kendra. Massey, what do you think the social economic disparities might look like? While doing research for this project, I noticed that there were some interesting socioeconomic disparities concerning genetic testing. Especially within minority groups, this is due to social, cultural, economic, and educational reasons. In many cases, genetic testing goes against traditions, is viewed negatively due to mistrust, or isn't covered by insurance for lower incomes. In many communities, there is a major lack of awareness for genetic services and understanding of the benefits of such genetic testing. Many minority groups appear to lack trust for the medical community's potential use or misuse of genetic information. Although, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, the GINA, which was passed in 2008, was created to protect Americans against discrimination in health insurance and employment based on their genetic information. Some other solutions that could potentially help with these disparities include addressing the mistrust of genetic screening um, head-on and quelling people's concerns, as well as educating the importance and benefits of genetic testing. Thank you. Hey, it's Carl again. I think my biggest takeaway was that when I first started this research project, I really thought things would be pretty straightforward. However, as I continued my research into these various quality assurance programs and testing protocols, I quickly gained an appreciation for the sheer magnitude of all of the current logistical processes used to supervise and manage these genetic screening programs across the globe. What about you, Kendra? I definitely think there is a lot more to this subject than any of us originally bargained for. Um, I think that this is something that definitely needs a lot more research and is going to probably always going to be hotly debated as to what the possible negatives and positive outcomes could be using this technology. Well, it looks like that's about all we have time for today, but we really appreciate everyone taking the time to listen to us present on pre- and postnatal genetic screening. We hope that our listeners are now more informed on genetic screening and will use this information to increase awareness on the topic. Tune in again soon, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.